I begin this morning with an old Persian story that's been circulating for a, a number of years. A spy uh, was captured and sentenced to death uh, by a general of the Persian army. That was the consequence if you were a spy. And uh, the Persians had a very interesting custom at that time. Uh, they would give the condemned person a choice. Really weird custom. He could either face a firing squad or the black door. Shortly before the time of the spy's scheduled execution, the general ordered the prisoner to be brought to him. And as was the custom, it was time for this poor guy to answer the million-dollar question. What's it going to be, the firing squad or the black door? For the spy, in that moment, it was literally a life and death decision he was about to make. And the prisoner hung his head for a considerable amount of time in deep thought. And finally, he whispered, firing squad. And so a hood was placed over his head and a volley of shots announced. The grim sentence had been carried out to its completion. The general who oversaw all of this stared down at his boots and then uh, turned to his aide and asked, You see how it is with men? They will always prefer the known way over the unknown. Why is it so common for people to be afraid of what might be? Why is it people are so afraid of what might be? And yet I gave him a choice. I gave him a choice. <laughs> well, the aide, not knowing quite what to say, Ask this question, uh, can you tell me what's behind the black door? Freedom, the general said. But I've known only a few men brave enough to risk it. The only one brave enough to choose the black door deserves to be free. This story comes with a very strong challenge. We will often choose the familiar, even if it's undesirable, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's, we know that's really not what we should be doing, even over the unknown. We choose that for what could be an amazing opportunity. And that is the nature of humanity. As we've been learning, most people are too afraid to take the risk. Now, I'm not saying we should reject the familiar. No, 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 no. Not at all. I'm not saying we should reject the familiar. Familiar's not so bad, right? Uh, familiar feels far more comfortable. But just because it's familiar doesn't make it good, doesn't make it best, doesn't even make it God's will. And that's what we've been learning. So don't get stuck on the familiar. As I was telling the story about the black door, you probably are saying to yourself, I would have chosen the black door. Well, I would have chosen the black door. I got nothing to lose. The firing squad was certain death, so I might as well choose the black door, really. <laughs> and most people would say that same thing. But if actually faced with that choice, what would we do? How many doors to freedom have we passed on, passed up during our lifetime because we cling so fiercely to the familiar, so intently to the comfortable? How many missed opportunities have we had to be free, to grow, to see life differently, to experience all God has for us because we are clinging to that which is comfortable? Now, as Sam taught us last week, Sam, nice job. Don't you think Sam did a nice job last week for the, those of you that were here? Thank you, Sam. Great, great, great. Sam said this, time erodes awareness, he taught us. Time erodes awareness. And I agree with that completely. Time erodes awareness. And the more comfortable we are in a situation, the longer that this goes on, the more desensitized we are to our situation. And anything that comes against that situation then uh, becomes uh, negative for many of us. 
Many of us aren't even aware how bored and stagnant we become. How routine-driven, how comfortable uh, we are. And why risk my comfort and convenience and stability and security? Why would I want to do that? I'm working so hard to provide that for my family. Why would I want to risk any of that? That's a good question. That's a good question. Each risk that we take in life is really a picture of that black door of sorts. And if we choose the risk, if we choose the risk, we can pass to greater freedom because we made a choice. We made a choice to take the risk. So that's in general what we've been talking about these last uh, couple of months. Now, Peter's black door was sliding over the side of a boat in, in the middle of a storm in order to get to Jesus. That, in that moment, became Peter's black door. In the process, he walked on water. Our passage has been, for this entire series, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 32. Now, I encourage you to open your electronic device or your Bible, whatever you've got to follow along. I think it's very important that we look at the Word of God together. So we are in Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. I've been reading from different uh, versions uh, just to give us a little different picture uh, that each one paints for us of this particular passage of Scripture. So here we go, Matthew 14, beginning at verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen. They were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once, Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter called him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Uh, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Incredible and yet familiar passage of Scripture. Let's look a little deeper. We've learned that risk-taking is way more than thrill-seeking. Risk-taking is far more than thrill-seeking. Way more than that. Why? A risk-taking, by definition, is a willingness to do things that involve danger or risk in order to achieve a goal. In order to achieve a goal. So uh, risk-taking has purpose and intent. In other words, if that becomes the goal, I must make a series of decisions in order to accomplish that goal, each one of them risky. But my eyes are on the end on the finish line, on the goal that's out there, knowing that uh, along the way, along this journey toward that goal, there are going to be decisions that I'm going to have to make that are risky and uncomfortable and probably unpleasant. I really don't want to make this choice. But we say high risk, high reward. High risk, high reward. There's some truth to that statement. Some risks are greater than others. And over these uh, past weeks, I've shared with you uh, our risk-taking adventures from skydiving to scuba diving to paragliding off a mountain to to doing those kinds of things. And uh, last week I mentioned to you uh, selling our house and uh, how rapidly that went. And you had a homeless pastor, but I'm here to report that we took that risk. We did sign a lease, so at least we have a place to go. And lots of packing to do in just a couple of weeks. And so uh, Cindy and I have lived our lives uh, taking those kinds of risks. 
And I suppose I will to the end because I've seen the beauty of risk taking and the freedom that it brings. So let's continue to unpackage this. Risk is not recklessness. Even though most of us do everything we can to reduce the element of risk in our lives, and most of that is very good. Wear a seatbelt, wear a mask, wear a helmet, come on. You know, all these kinds of things. Use some common sense, would you? Right? Right? And yet, uh, understand that risk is not only emotional, it's also rooted in logic. Risk is calculated. It's not like just, hey, let's do this. No, risk is always based on a goal. We went over that whole principle. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Uh, You better sit down and count the cost first because following me is going to cost you something. And so uh, figure it out, think through it. And before you decide to follow me, uh, I suggest you count the cost before you take the first step. And so then, in a spiritual sense, uh, risk is calculated. We look at the goal, and the goal is spiritual. If it's spiritual, is following Jesus then becomes our goal. Risk is also a carefully and prayerfully considered spiritual choice then to trust and obey God. It is also a spiritual choice. And we who are Jesus' followers see everything then as being ultimately spiritual. Following Jesus is risky. And if you haven't discovered that, uh, then we're probably not following him uh, the way the uh, scriptures say that we all ought to be following him. And that's with our whole body, soul, mind, and strength, every fiber of our being. And we'll know if we're following Jesus correctly, because what will the world think of us? I'm translating in Greek. One of my goals has been to translate the entire New Testament on my own, and I'm making great progress toward that. I'm in John chapter 17, and Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. If the world's not hating us, I wonder where we are. I wonder where we are. Now, that's very strong language, but if we were in another context in another country, they would understand very, very clearly what it means to follow Jesus and the world hating them. This, my friends, is coming to this country rapidly. And so we haven't known much in this place about the risk of following Jesus. But if it's not you, it will be your children and your grandchildren. I'm convinced following Jesus is going to be a risky, risky proposition. Anyway, Peter was a risk taker. He trusted Jesus. He took a risk and did a little water walking. But understand, as we look at the end of Peter's life, what the risk of following Jesus cost him. Peter was crucified head downward in Rome, denying the opportunity to be crucified the proper Roman way because he said, I will not be crucified the way my master was. And that is how Peter died, crucified head downward. Can you imagine the pain and the suffering of that kind of a death? Following Jesus is risky. So we go from water walking, oh, how cool, Peter, to the very end of his life and the last breath that he took, upside down being crucified. Risky business this is, following our master. Huh. Peter trusted Jesus in that moment. Peter trusted Jesus till the very end. But it cost him his life. Jesus was a risk taker himself. It cost him his life. And then he goes and he entrusts the salvation of the world, your salvation and my salvation, to 11 guys sitting in a boat who were frightened to death. Talk about risk. Wow, Jesus, you're trusting this movement, this, this whole thing in, into the hands of these 11 guys. Jesus was a risk taker, trusting that that his message 
would go out from 11 weak and frightened men in a boat. I wonder, are you a risk taker? You're a risk taker. Let's just have some fun with this for a second. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? Now, this is the interactive part. Good. Adam? Uh, 156 miles on a motorcycle. 156 miles on a motorcycle. What was the goal? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great, great question. Thanks, Dustin. Okay. Okay, good. No, no judgment here. Leave the poor guy alone, would you? Uh, yeah, uh, Dustin, any comment to that? Okay, good. <laughs> does, does your squad car go faster than that? <laughs> Love it, good. Okay, what's the riskiest thing you've ever done? Thank you, Adam, for sharing. That was nice. Now, it doesn't have to be a major kind of, you know, weird kind of, just what's the riskiest thing you've ever done? Okay, coming to this country, marrying an American. Oh, he was an American. So you married someone from Poland and then moved to America. Ah, so the move. Wow, that's pretty risky. How's that working for you? (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Kim? Leaving your job of 25 years. Is that risky? Absolutely. 25 years is a long time, folks. Be working at the same place, doing the same thing with the same people. That changed your life when you left? Hard, wasn't it? Wow, you took a risk and found more freedom. Amazing, amazing. What's the risky thing you've ever done? Go ahead, a couple more. Captain? Daryl, that's you. What? A high angle rescue? Okay, now that's weird. I didn't know you did that stuff. And I don't like heights either, but <laughs> that was risky. Was it scary? Very scary. Did you accomplish the goal? We did. Okay, that's cool. And behind you? Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Was that risky? Yeah, there was a huge gap there from the end of the bridge to the Ah. Ah. I was just picturing that in my mind. Okay, been there, done that one. That was good. That was good. All right. Who else? Riskiest thing you've ever done. Yeah. Traveling in Haiti. On the edge of a mountain. Yeah, and that's... Uh, no rules to the road. Yeah, if you've driven much in foreign countries, you understand <laughs> driving can be risky. Although I had a guy this morning. Well, anyway, it's a different story. Okay. Ah, very good, Dylan. Risky. Good. Kayla, were you in on that decision? Agreement? Always helps. Good. Hey, Sandy. <laughs> Moving to Hong Kong with three small kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. That's risky, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah. Good. Who's over here? Good. Dustin. Ah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I like that. Moving to Wisconsin is a Viking man. Okay. Anyway, that's all good. Now, according to WebMD, Jennifer Warner wrote an article. German researchers surveyed more than 20,000 people about risk. Here's three interesting things they found. Now, I'm just reporting, all right, at this point. A person's height was directly related to a person's willingness to take risks. The taller you are, the most, more risks you're going to take. So Milo starts his own business. Dustin starts his own business. These guys are tall, and I guess they're risk takers, so, right? Okay, so I don't know how that works exactly, but okay. The taller you are, the more risk you're willing to take. Uh, people who enjoyed taking risks were more content, more happy with their lives. <laughs> Why? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Women generally take fewer risks than men. Some general observations about risk takers. Again, general observations. Now, I'm really kind of bummed our series, Water Walking, is coming to an end as a series based on faith and risk. Over the last couple of months, I've really been challenged, and I hope you have been challenged as well by this passage of Scripture. Uh, Even though this series is ending in that sense, the need to actually do what we've been talking about is just beginning. It's just beginning as we look forward to what's to come for each of us and for all of us together. You see, like it or not, ready or not, the Lord often puts us in risky situations. That is a part of following Jesus. He is going to put us in risky situations. Always probing, always testing our response. Uh, Which choice are we uh, going to make? And just as our muscles become stronger when pushed to the maximum, our faith can only be strengthened, only be strengthened and grow when it's taken to the extreme. And so our faith has got to be stretched in order to take us where Jesus wants us to be. Risky situations then become growth opportunities. And the more that we resist risk, the less growth we're going to have. And the more we will embrace the risk as long as Jesus is our goal and getting to Jesus is our goal, the more we are going to grow, the more like Jesus we are going to become, the more mature in the faith we will be. And that's not based on how long you've been coming to church or you said this prayer sometime about asking Jesus into your heart. I'm talking about where is your faith right now? Where is our faith right now? Where is our faith collectively as a church right now? The disciples were consistently and constantly challenged to grow. Uh, Understand that as we look at at the whole uh, of the Gospels. And remember when we started this series way back when, we started with these words immediately after this. That's how this passage opened, right? Immediately after this. What was this? Anybody remember? It was the feeding of the multitude, right? And we talked briefly about that. So always put Scripture in context. This was the feeding of the great multitude. So understand this water walking thing. Uh, We're rolling the, the, the clock back just a couple of hours, less than a day. And here's what was going on in the life of the disciples. My point is this. Jesus consistently was putting his disciples in risky and awkward situations. So here's what we read. That evening the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. And it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. There is no fast food available. There's no convenience store available. And in that area, there, were is- there are isolated villages in which they could m- perhaps find some food. The scriptures say they fed 5,000 men, and most commentators would say between fifteen and 20,000 people were listening to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in that area, or when he was teaching here. But Jesus said, you feed them. You feed them. Okay. 
Uh, Jesus, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. You feed them. You feed them. Jesus, again, puts them in a risky, a very awkward situation. we got all of these people here that, imagine 15,000 people, right, who are getting hangry. They say, hey, we want to make Jesus our king. He's candidate for king of Israel. Yay, 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 good. Let's go, Jesus. But he says, you feed them. Yeah, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Until they redirected their attention back to Jesus, they were absolutely stuck. What are we going to do? You feed them. And the Lord's constantly asking us these kind of questions. You do this. I can't do this. You do it. So just a matter of hours later, we've got the disciples on the boat in the storm, and he asked Peter, you come to me. Understand, there's only a few hours between these, and there's going to be one right after that. Because if we're following Jesus the way he deserves to be followed, there will be this constant series of risks that he's asking us to take. It's not one and done. Uh-uh. So don't, please, don't isolate the water-walking passage Put it back into its proper context in the Gospels, in which time and time again, Jesus is continually stretching the faith of his disciples. And if we follow Jesus in that way, that's what our experience will be as well. Just like that. Now, a few hours later, Jesus made, depending on your translation, he insists his disciples get in the boat, go across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee to the village of Capernaum, Right? Meanwhile, he heads up for a little solo mountaineering in order to get away from the crowds and all this rhetoric about, let's make you king and all this stuff to get some peace and quiet, but most importantly, to pray. And we took a look at all of that as we've been through this series. And while he's praying, disciples are churning away, fighting this tremendous, ferocious storm on the Sea of Galilee, attempting with all their might to get back to shore, completely exhausted, after nine hours of rowing. Now, uh, Cindy and I went for a little kayaking yesterday. Did two, two and a half hours. You know, I was like, oh, that's a good workout. But I'm talking about nine hours here. that They're fighting this thing. Uh, fighting for their lives on the Sea of Galilee. And they see this shadowy figure coming toward them. He's walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. They cry out like frightened children. Ah! It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Who could blame them? And then Jesus startles them with these words. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. And again, uh, that's so key to understanding this whole idea of risk. Don't be afraid. We live in a moment in our history of great fear. Everyone is unsettled, uneasy about the uncertainty and and what's to come. What's going to come next? What's next? Wow. Don't be afraid. The root of that word, phobia, means to flee, to run away from. And that's what fear does. It causes us to run away. Jesus said, don't run away. Rather, take courage. The only way that we can take courage is because of the basis of courage. And he says, I am here. I am here. I am here. It's going to be okay. I am here. I'm here. And God's speaking to you, your family, our church family, these words. I'm convinced of that. Can we hear his voice? Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. And regardless of the storm that's churning on the outside of your life right now, and even though you're sitting here, that storm, you're feeling the impact of that storm just all over you right now. The words never change. Don't be afraid. Don't run. Do not run. Take courage. Take courage. I am here. I am here. And he's speaking that over us and to us right now. I am here. I'm here. I'm here. Everything changes when he's here. 
he will never leave us. He is for us. The storm was going on around them. But Jesus calls his disciples to take courage. Take courage in order to still the storm that was going on within them. And understand when we're following Jesus uh, all too often, our earthbound prayers, God, would you provide the money for this? God, would you take away this illness? God, would you do this? God, would you do that? It's, 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 it, those are all valid, understandable kinds of praying. But Jesus, when he answers that prayer, often will not change the circumstances around us because his goal is always to change the heart that's beating within us so that it's fully devoted to him. And so if we're counting on Jesus to take away all the bad stuff, it is not going to happen. It is not going to happen. It's only with great tribulation, Paul said, that someone enters the kingdom of heaven. But he said, the peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Peace that surpasses our circumstances and our understanding. That's what he's offering to us. Not freedom uh, from hard circumstances. No, that's how we grow. Or can we grasp this for a moment? These are not, okay, necessarily negative. Anyway, at Jesus' invitation, Peter does his Peter thing. He climbs over the side of the boat and he walks on the water toward Jesus. That is until he starts to sink. Down he goes. Peter's faith was enough to get him out of the boat, but it wasn't enough to sustain him across the water. And oftentimes, that's uh, the story of many Jesus followers and my own life that I encounter. I got enough faith to get out of the boat. We start out with good intentions, but somewhere something happens and our faith falters. Why, God, I'm following you. Here's my goal. Here's the goal. It's to honor Jesus. I want to do it with all my heart. And yet this happens. And my faith falters, and I begin looking at the circumstances. And I begin to sink. I begin to sink. This does not mean we failed when we started to sink. Please understand this. Sinking is not failing. Necessarily. Doesn't mean we fail. In fact, I think just the opposite. Sometimes staying in the boat and playing it safe is the real failure. A life not lived to the abundance that God had planned for us. Missing the opportunities, the eternal opportunities that are all around us. And I think there's far more failure in staying in the boat and playing it safe than there can be getting out of the boat and sinking. Whoa, it's a much different way to look at life. Peter got out of a boat. Sam challenged us last week. What do we need to get out of? What do we need to get out of in order to follow Jesus? In order to come to him? What do we need to get out of right now? What mindset has us trapped? What fear has grabbed us and strangled our faith? What do we need to be freed from? Now, as we read, when Jesus got into the boat with his waterlogged buddy named Peter. The storm stopped. The disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God. Whoa, look what you did to my circumstances. This is really cool, they exclaimed. When Jesus got into the boat, the storm stopped. Pretty cool. He had already done this several chapters earlier. The year before, they had already done this. When he, remember when he was asleep in the back of the boat? And they said, hey, we're going to drown. Wake up. And he was like, eh, be still. Right? Again, Jesus stops the storm. Why? Because the wind and the waves had served their purpose. And understand this the storm in your life and mine right now has a purpose. Just because there's a storm in your life, God is a God who is sovereign, who oversees the storm as well. No matter what storm you're facing right now, that storm has got a purpose. It hasn't caught God by surprise. It just didn't pop up out of nowhere, this big thunderstorm, right? No. God knew all about it. The storm has purpose. The storm will end in your life. One way or another, the storm that you're facing right now will end at some point. The question is, will the lessons be learned 
from the storm. The storm has purpose. Are we learning the lesson of the storm that we're experiencing right now? Or are we running away from that? The storm has great purpose. The storm has lessons to teach us and faith that needs to grow. Will we learn the lessons from the storm? And understand, just because we got out of one boat and just because we got out of one storm, be aware, there's another one coming. And if you're storm-free right now and you're a Jesus follower, I'm saying, hang on, hang on, enjoy the smooth sailing because there's another storm coming. I guarantee it, there is another storm that's about to hit. Why? I've got more growing up to do. I want to be more like Jesus. You know, the storm has purpose to make us more like him, far more than the comfort of the boat. Then this storm is something that I've got to embrace, not run from. I want to live like that. With that kind of freedom. At that moment, the silence must have been deafening. These guys just totally exhausted. And all of a sudden, just dawn breaking on the Sea of Galilee. And it's just like a glass, like nothing had ever happened. The silence must have been deafening. The 12 were taken past amazement to worship, and that's always the intention of miracles, to take us beyond the fact that the storm is stilled. Every miracle that God does is designed that we might worship him, that we might bend the knee and submit and surrender to him again. You are the Lord of all. You are great and you are mighty. And the greatest of all is the resurrection of Jesus because that is what our faith is based on. The greatest miracle of all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if that doesn't cause us to worship him, we're missing the point. He took that risk for us. You want to see a miracle? We got to get out of the boat. We got to take a risk if we want to see a miracle. What is God talking to you about? Maybe it's time to shake things up in your boring life. Your boring routine, same thing, same food, same drive home, same blah, 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 blah. This is really boring. Is this all there is? Are you kidding me? There's got to be more to life than this. This is, this is kind of boring. I'm saying get up. Get out of the boat. Maybe God has a risk in front of us. And my goal, my goal is to get us to move forward together in unity by wholeheartedly embracing risk as the antidote, as the only antidote, as I see it, for overcoming our complacency, for overcoming our lukewarmness, our apprehension, our fear of failure. Take the risk. Take the risk. The world is lost and confused and hopeless. We have the way, the truth, and the life. We have it. He is Jesus. And we are here to make sure that we are the light bearer of hope in all of this restlessness. But first, we've got to deal with the storm that's going on in our own life, in our own heart, in our own marriage, in our own home first. What is God saying in the storm? God, would you get us out of the boat? Get us out of the boat. Because that's where you are. Not in the boat. You're on the water. And if we're going to come to you, as you said to Peter, come. Yeah, it's me. Come on. You got to get out of the boat. You got to get out of the boat. So what about it, church? God-sized projects are before us. We're always going to have different shapes and forms but some that we've identified are a major shift in the way that we look at outreach and not from a uh, attractional kind of hey let's come to an event or a building 
but a more missional mindset that any missionary would have anywhere serving in the world today that no, no, we go and we find the need and understand this. Check out the Gospels. Jesus always, always began with a need and then shared how he could be the answer to that need. He always began with a need. The need of the moment. And then move that into a spiritual conversation about how life can be so much different. About how your eternal destiny can be so much different. And so a major shift into, into a missional mindset which says we've got to go to them. We've got to go to them. No longer will they be so willing to come to us. We must go. Go and make disciples. We must go to do that. And so in order for that to happen, I believe the church of the future is going to look much different than the church in 2020. I am absolutely convinced of that, at least in this country. It's going to look far more the way it does overseas. And having experienced that both in Africa and Asia and Europe, it's got to look considerably different it's coming here it has to the rest of the world is is, we're just following the path that they've already laid before us it's got to look much different and so as we think about this uh, transitions then uh, to a facility that will help us match then our need for outreach what is that going to look like Transition to the next pastor of this church a little further down the road. What is that going to look like? So next week we're going to hear a progress report from each of the teams that have been exploring possibilities. And there'll be a report given to you, the congregation, about where we are in some of these things. And I think it's very exciting. Some of us have been praying, and I thank you for that, and I encourage all of us uh, to be in prayer. And if you have a real burden for that, check with Todd. Todd, you want to wave your hand there? Uh, Check with Todd. Uh, He's coordinating praying people uh, because these are God-sized projects, and they have to be immersed in prayer. They have to be. And thank you, Todd, for, for leading that up. Many of you have partnered in prayer. Thank you. Some of us have the ability to make a larger contribution or a different contribution. Some of you are serving on these teams now. And thank you uh, for doing that. God is working in some great ways. But God is going to challenge each of us and all of us to get out of the boat. Friends, now is the time. Now is the time to get out of the boat. It's time for a little water walking. And Jesus' is invitation is come come slip over the side of the boat doesn't feel natural and I'm leaving the comfort of what is for the possibility of what might be that's an amazing journey and he says come come So what in your heart and life right now do you need to release? What boat is he asking you to get out of? Are we willing? I think we are. I think we're up for this. I think now is the time. And I'm excited about what the possibilities might be. Thank you, Lord. All right. Thanks for putting up with me during this series. I have really been stretched myself. And it's a good thing. Because I want to be more like Jesus. Jenny? Yeah. Did you all hear what Jenny said? Okay, so our struggle as parents who are risk takers and we'll get out of the boat, but what happens when our kids don't want to get out of the boat? But maybe they're too immature to understand 
give them the answer, well, God's asking them to. You can just find good ones for them. Yeah, I think that's a very, very valid question, don't you? What happens with our kids? Now, let me ask you this. Are you a child of God? Are you immature in a lot of ways? Does God ask you to get out of the boat? And you don't want to? What do you do? You throw a fit. Here is an honest woman. Right here. Because that's what I do too. You might not see it on the outside, but in the inside, man, I'm throwing fit. Like, why now? Why this? Are you kidding? This is impossible. Uh, you got the wrong family, right? Yeah. Go over to the thickets. They're ready for it, right? Okay. Yeah. Right? Okay. So how do you handle it? That's my question to you. Because we are children. And God does ask us to get out of the boat. And there are times we resist that because we're not mature enough. And our faith hasn't grown to that point. So my, my challenge is begin looking at your own heart and your own experiences. I say share those with your kids. If the more they hear of our struggles, instead of us being all together, which they know we're not, <laughs> uh, the more the faith becomes so real to them. Does God ever force you out of the boat? God is a gentleman. Okay, yes, he is. Is God a parent? Do parents have to ask their children to do things they don't want to do? Does God make them do it? Oh, I got some yeses and some noes. Good. This is where, I, where I, I'm starting to like it. Because I'm just trying to get you to think for a moment. Has God ever forced me to do something? Yes, he has. He's put me in a position where that's the only choice. Now, I realize if I would have done that way back here, my life would be so much better. Right? It's like, you need to ask your wife to forgive you. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Nope, 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 nope. Okay, after like, you know, two or three sleepless nights, then I'm like, <laughs> I know what I'm supposed to do, right? Is God forcing me? No, it's still my choice. But he's going to make it very, very difficult because sometimes our kids aren't so willing to obey and follow and they don't understand. I see this constantly in the disciples. Why don't you get this? Jesus comes and why? Why do you doubt me? You just fed 15,000 people from five and two. And now I ask you to do this little thing of walking on the water. (laughs) Right? So as we think about this, God is constantly putting you and your children, and he starts very early in life, putting, do your kids get into risky situations? Yeah? Yeah? Does that scare you? Do you sometimes put your kids in what is seemingly a risky situation in order for them to choose? Uh Uh-huh. And I started early with our kids. Now, some of you may think it's child abuse, but it's all a matter of perspective. I would put them on the refrigerator, and I would say, jump to daddy. Daddy's got you. You will not fall. Trust me. Trust me. All five of my kids, all of my grandkids, will, when I put them on the refrigerator, will jump into my arms. Did I force them? Well, maybe. But the point, the point being, I had to put them in that situation in order that they might learn to trust. God is constantly doing that. Hmm? Did you ever drop one? Never drop one yet. Yet. But I'm getting older and I hope my reflexes are still... <laughs> put them on the stove. Fire it up and they'll watch them go. <laughs> 
All right, those are great questions, great comments. I know this is stirring a lot in each of us, and I'm grateful for that. But this I know. He's saying the same things that he said to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. You are not a failure as a parent. I'm not buying that lie. I'm not a failure as a human being. I'm not buying that lie either. Because he's for me. And he is here. And he's enough. Let's pray. Father, thanks. Thanks for these weeks of wrestling with this and how it stirred things up. And there are no easy answers. But there you are bidding us all with open arms come. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened. All you who are confused and hopeless. Just come to me. And he's here for us. Again with open arms. Inviting us into his embrace. And that's where safety is. That's where peace is. That's where joy is. That's where a fulfilling life is. So, Lord, whatever boat we're in, would you allow us the courage to slip over the side as long as our goal is you and following you in obedience? And, Jesus, as you do this in each individual and in each home, would you do it for us collectively in these days of change? We need you, Jesus. We can't do this alone. We don't want to do it alone. We want to respond to your invitation. Yes, come. Come. So we come. All of us who are weary and heavy burdened. All of us who are joyful and happy. And all of us in between. We come to you, Jesus. And I'm asking that you would calm the storm in every heart. I'm not asking you to calm the circumstances of the storm. I'm asking you to calm the heart, which is far more important. You are here. And we say we love you, Jesus. Help us now to trust you as we lay that thing at your feet and say, Here you go. I'm ready. Father, thank you for these wonderful people who have come today. And I ask that we will leave here pondering the things of the kingdom and what you're saying to us. As we say, come Lord Jesus, come to your invitation. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. And together all God's people said, Amen. Amen.